Turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. We are moving slowly through the Olivet Discourse, if you haven't noticed that by now. It's a slow process, and my pace in doing this reminds me of the turtle and the snail. You see, a snail was going down a country road when a turtle went across his path, causing the snail to flip upside down on his little snail back. And a squirrel came bounding along the trees beside the road and looked down and saw the snail in a predicament. So he scurried down the tree, got into the road, flipped over the snail back upright, and the squirrel asked, what happened? And the snail said, I don't know really, it it happened so fast. Y'all get that in a minute, okay, (laughs) in just a moment. So this is just a warning today. We're going to continue to move at a rapid snail's pace by looking at the end of verse 30 and all of verse 31 as we begin our journey. So I want to just real quickly give you a little bit of review. This is what it said we talked about last week. It says, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And so what we discussed and talked about in that, some believe that that meant that Jesus was going to be in the sky or there's going to be a big cross or a big emblem in the world when Jesus comes back and therefore everybody can see it right before there's going to be a rapture. But according to the Greek, when we look at it from that uh, Greek, the literal translation says the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And so when we look at it in heaven, we have to understand that that sign is a proof that the Son of Man is in heaven, as it says in Daniel 7, 13 through 14, which prophesied that the Son of Man would come with the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days. Futurists will teach that this is a prophecy fulfilled by Jesus, that when he comes at the rapture, he's going to come down from heaven. But Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14 says, he went up to the ancient of days. The ancient of days being God, he is in heaven. So he went there to receive his everlasting kingdom. Theologian Marcellus Kick says this, the judgment upon Jerusalem was the sign of the fact that the Son of Man was reigning in heaven, and that's what we discussed last week. In other words, when Jesus was crucified, he then buried as rose after 40 days of speaking with his disciples and many others. He ascended up into heaven, and he there is now sitting at the right hand of God. Also, David Chilton, another theologian, said the destruction of Jerusalem was a sign that the Son of Man, the second Adam, was in heaven ruling over the world and disposing it for all uh, for uh, disposing it for his own purposes. So now as we read the last part of verse 30, it says, "And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory." Now we need to understand what this word means. I have it underlined. The Greek word is gi, not the butter, gi, but it says in earth, but it also can be translated land. 
In translated land, Matthew 27, 45 talks about the land was covered in darkness using this same Greek word. It could be used as soil. Jesus gave a parable about the seeds and going into the soil. And also it says that in these verses, in verse 8 and verse 23, it says ground. It came up on rocky ground. Matthew 25, 5 talks about ground, that a servant dug in the ground. So how in the world do we know what this word actually means or this verse actually means if we're going to translate it the way it needs to be translated? Well, here's remember the principle. Context is king. Context is king. Matthew 24, Olivet Discourse. Jesus is talking to his disciples They ask him a question, when is going to be the end of the age? And he is answering them, you will see these things. You will understand these things. You will know these things. He's talking to them at that time. So he's talking about the events that are going to occur in the first century. In fact, Jesus warns his audience to flee Judea when they see the abomination of desolation, or as Luke describes it, Jerusalem surrounded by armies. That means that this cannot be something 2,000 years in the future. Jerusalem literally saw it, literally saw armies, Roman armies, surround Jerusalem before they fell. So a better translation of this text would be this. All the tribes of the land shall mourn. Now, why is that so? In context, the event that he's speaking of is restricted to Israel, is restricted to Jerusalem. Israel, Jerusalem, the Jewish heritage is all the topic of discussion in Matthew chapter 24. And we need to understand this too. When you're reading the scriptures, the Gentiles are never referred to as tribes. Never. It doesn't talk about the tribes of the Gentiles. It talks about the tribes of Israel, the tribes of the Jews. It's constantly saying that. So this is a warning to the tribes uh, of Israel that dwelled in the land. It's a warning, basically, that the city, their city, their sanctuary, everything would be reduced to rubble. And so this was the language that Jesus was using. Remember, It's language that we may not be used to, but the Jews understood. This was language of judgment, and it was the fulfillment of prophecy. Now, we go to the scriptures. We go to Zechariah, and we begin to look and say, how is this a fulfillment of prophecy? Notice what it says. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This again is the language of judgment. If you look and read the book of Zechariah, you will see it's judgment that God is calling upon it. So how do we know that all these things are fulfilled in the first century? This is how we know. Listen to what it says in Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. 
Righteous and having salvation is he, and humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So we have to ask ourselves the question, was this fulfilled in the first century? Was it fulfilled in Jesus' earthly ministry? Absolutely it was. Matthew 21, 2 through 5 says, Go into the village in front of you, and you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and I will send them at once. And this took place, listen to what it says, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, a coal, on a colt, a foal of a beast of burden. Exactly what we just read in Zechariah is now repeated in Matthew. So that was fulfilled by Jesus. Now we go to Zechariah eleven thirteen, and it says to me, Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Was that fulfilled within the first century? Talk about a potter's field. We talk about 30 pieces of silver. We talk about someone throwing it down in, in front of the Pharisees. Who was that? Judas Iscariot, we know that that was fulfilled during Jesus' earthly ministry. Again, we look at another fulfillment of Zechariah 13, 7. He says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And in Matthew 26, 31, it says, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Exactly what was prophesied in Zechariah 13, 7. So we know that this is a fulfillment, again, of things that were going on in the first century. John Bray, again, writes this thing. He says, but what happened at the cross and prior brought about the utter destruction and desolation of Jerusalem, that day of the Lord that had been promised upon Israel. Now, in Zechariah 14, 1 and 2, it says this, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. In the reading of, of Josephus, we understand exactly what happened. We understand that Celsus Gallus and Titus, when they came and gathered armies, they gathered armies from all the nations that they had conquered to come against Jerusalem to destroy it. Notice what it says. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken. Was it taken in AD 70? Absolutely it was. It was burnt to the ground. And the houses were plundered and the women raped. Josephus talks about that, that the women were ravaged, as he said, over and over again. Their children killed in front of them. And then they took half the city and went as prisoners and took them into exile. Exactly what Zechariah 14 has stated. 
So you see the Romans, this was fulfilled. They sacked Jerusalem and all the tribes of the land mourned as they experienced the judgment of God. Now, folks, this is also fulfillment in Revelation 1-7, which says this, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Now, where do they say that? Zechariah, it was stated before. Revelation, I believe. Revelation was written in early predating of the A.D. 70. There are many who have said over the, the last 100 years, because of the rise of dispensationalism and premillennialism as far as that together, saying it had to be written in AD 90. But there is inward proof within the scripture itself in Revelation that this revelation was written about, was written about this account in highly symbolic language. Because when we look at Revelation chapter, uh, verse 1, it says these things are going to happen soon. These things are going to happen soon. If I tell you, hey, I'm coming to you soon, you're going to be thinking, well, it's going to be in the next few minutes, it's going to be the next day, maybe the next week, not 2,000 years. And so you have to understand it says they're coming soon. And then when it comes to Revelation 1-7, it says, He's coming with the clouds, and we've understood that, and we see that in verse 30. We understood that he's coming with power and glory. We've already talked about how God used that hyperbole, that figure of speech and clouds, bringing about judgment, using other people's armies to come and to enact that judgment on people, and he described it as they're coming on the clouds. And so here's what he's saying. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him. There were people alive at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem that were there and witnessed Jesus Christ being crucified. Did they see this judgment? Yes, they saw him. So it says, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. There it is again. There is the same word that's used. Even so, amen. Even so, amen. Now, when we look at this morning among the Jews, there is a precursor to the final morning. It's found in Acts chapter 2. Peter is preaching. Peter is standing up. They had had the pouring of the Spirit of God upon the people. They spoke in different languages. It wasn't a quote-unquote heavenly language, a gibberish kind of thing. It wasn't a glossolalia language that they're saying this is the tongues of angels. That's not what he was speaking about. We had that controversy a long time and for a long time in the schools that I did. And we had to, we had to go one time, folks, trust me that I'm telling you the truth. In my doctrine class at HBU, we had to go visit the different kinds of churches and listen to how their doctrine was being preached. So we had to go to, we had to go to a Lutheran church, an Episcopal church, a Presbyterian church, Methodist church. We had to visit these things. And then we got to go to a charismatic church. So me and my friend picked Lakewood when John Osteen 
was still the pastor, not Joel Osteen, John Osteen. It was on a Wednesday night that we went. And during that Wednesday night, as we were sitting here taking notes for our class, me and my friend, that Brother Osteen said, if you haven't had the gift of tongues, raise your hand, you know. And so now we're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, he spotted us, you know, because we're taking notes. He has spotted us. So therefore, if you haven't, if you don't have it, we're going to teach you how to speak in tongues. And they gathered around us, and they all started going, you know, doing their thing and speaking in tongues and doing whatever they're doing, this kind of gibberish thing that they were doing. And they literally were gathering around us, and the guy had his hand on my face and kept moving my jaw back and forth, just loosen it up, loosen it up, loosen it up, while another one was punching me in the stomach. Going, here, let it go, like, here, go, like, and let it go, hoo, hoo, you know, and doing all this other kind of stuff, and we're doing this and that. And my friend over here, it scared him to death, so he just started saying stuff. And when he just started saying stuff, guess what? He got it. He got it. That kind of thing. The book of Acts, that's not the way it was. There wasn't anybody whopping people in the stomach or moving their jaw and saying, loosen up, slapping your face and those kind of things. It was a language. It was a real language that was happening. And so Peter, after hearing this, the people say, are these these people drunk? It's only the third hour of the day. And Peter stands up and he delivers a message. And then he says this, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's important. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They're mourning, folks, over what they did to Jesus Christ, whom you crucified. Think about it this way. Think that on your watch, you've got your grandchild or you've got your child with you. It's a hot summer day. You decided we're going to Walmart. You're making a bunch of stops. You're just running in, running out, running in, running out. And you get busy on the phone and you park your car and you walk into Walmart and you forget your child. Windows rolled up. You've been in there for about an hour. You walk out and you see people breaking windows in your car and your child unconscious. Would you be cut to the heart? Knowing it's your fault. Knowing it's you that was responsible for that kind of thing. Would you mourn? Especially if the child passes. Would you absolutely be cut to the heart? That's what they were. That's the best way to describe this kind of thing. When they saw and understood, when Peter says, this Jesus whom you crucified. They mourned. This was a precursor to the mourning that they had when they saw the, the army surrounding them. And when they started coming in upon them, they mourned. They mourned. They cried out in agony. They had crucified the Lord. And now 
He is being vindicated because it says, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That is verbiage speaking about judgment. And he would be glorified in his judgment and he is just in his judgment to punish those who continue to reject him. So understand this. The word see was not interpreted as something visible but to perceive that Jesus' prophecies about himself were now validated. He is the Messiah. He's the Son of Man reigning in heaven and he sends forth his will and that will is to destroy the covenant breakers who rejected him and who crucified him. Now we go to verse 31. It says, And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds of the uh, from four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. So now we have to ask this question: Does this verse validate? A secret rapture. I'm going to send this home to you as much as I can, dear folks, because I know the way that I was taught and I know the way that you're taught in this over the last 150 years. A secret rapture was never introduced in, the Christ, uh, in Christian history until 1830. Go read the commentators before. Go read some of those, uh, those church histories and you will not see someone espousing a secret rapture. It's just not there. Did they espouse premillennialism? Yes. There were a few that said there's going to be a thousand year reign, but there was never a rapture spoken of concerning this before that. So we have to understand, some say it doesn't, some say it does. How can we determine, if we're looking at the scriptures, how can we determine what is Matthew's intent? Here's how we're going to do it. By applying the principles of word studies. One of the things that we have been trying to do in my tenure here, and even as Philip has here, been here for a year, we've, been have, we've had classes about how to study the Bible. Here's the word study principle that I want you to think about. You have to explain the various ways the word could be used when the author or authors wrote the book you are studying. Because words are used in various ways to convey different meanings. For example, we're going to take the word hand. I found this in the writings of George Guthrie, who is, uh, teaches biblical interpretation at Union University in, uh, in Tennessee. The word hand is used differently and in different ways. Hand me a hymnal. Give me a hand. Are you a hired hand? The hand on the clock is broken. He asked for my hand in marriage. I built this by hand. Give him a hand for that performance. The horse is 10 hands high. Do you see how we've used this all differently? So we have to ask ourselves, as we're looking at this verse, what does it mean concerning that he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call? We're going to explore that. The Greek word is angelos. It means messenger, to deliver a message, sent whether by God, by man, or by Satan. So angels in the scripture could be celestial beings 
who carried God's message. We find that in Matthew 18. They carried a message. They can also be human messengers who preach the gospel. We see that in Matthew eleven ten, And it can be satanic messenger who buffeted Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. But here's how that's used. The word angelos is used eight different times in the New Testament as referring to human messengers. Did you know John the Baptist was called an angel? John the Baptist three times. He is my messenger. The disciples of John were called angelos. Twice in the scriptures, Jesus sent messengers ahead of him, according to Luke chapter 9. And then a messenger of Satan could be, based on this word, a human messenger that buffeted Paul. It says that a messenger of Satan was given to me a thorn in the flesh to buffet my body. Could it be a demon? Could have been. Could have been a human messenger that kept beating him. At that point in time, we, we don't know. Could have been. According to James chapter 2, verse 25, Rahab received human messengers. And if you read Revelation 2 and 3, the pastors of the seven churches were called angels. So, seeing that Matthew uses the word angelos for both human messengers and angelic messengers, we refer back to the context. And the context clearly teaches that Jesus was doing what? What was he doing? He was speaking to the disciples, the people of that particular generation. So if angels were coming in that generation and gathering his elect up from the ends of the world, in that generation, then we have to understand this, all the elect was taken in that generation. And so we're just chopped liver. We're just sitting around here for 2,000 years doing nothing. You know, because the elect have already been taken. So we know that that's not what it means. It's not an angel, an angelic celestial being. So the idea then is this, is that human messengers will be the ones who will proclaim the gospel to the coming generations. And even if this does refer to angelic beings, it could refer to the supernatural power which lies behind the preaching of the gospel for angels are interested in and involved with Jesus saving work among men. Now, how do we know that? Listen to what it says. It was revealed to them in 1 Peter 1.12 that they were serving not themselves but you. He's talking about the prophets. Before that in the context, it says the prophets were preaching these things telling about Jesus Christ, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. They are interested in this thing because why? They are not redeemed. They are created beings by God and the holy angels are just that. They are holy, and they long to look in these things. But angels were also used for the furtherance of the gospel. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Well, what is the context? Philip there encounters the Ethiopian eunuch, and he witnesses to him. So angels were sent ahead of time to an evangelist to go and share the gospel. 
Then Jesus says this in Luke 12, 8 and 9. I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. I want you to look at that word acknowledge. Everyone who acknowledges, who acknowledges, that's a verb. But here's what it means. When you look at it from the scripture, it means to acknowledge with intent in a public way. Everyone who acknowledges me publicly with an intentional, an intentional witness before men, the Son of Man, will then intentionally, when you get to heaven, he will intentionally, before angels, acknowledge you before the Father. This was my witness. This was one who told people about Jesus Christ. This is one who had it burning on his heart and must have shared the gospel. He needed to share the gospel. Just like Paul says, woe unto me if I do not preach the gospel. And what happens when one sinner comes to salvation? We understand you get acknowledged before the angels. What do the angels do? They rejoice. They rejoice. So, we understand that angels could be behind this, but I believe he's talking about human messengers in this passage. Well, we have to ask the question, well, what about that trumpet thing? What about that one? What do we do with that one? Let me tell you. Again, we have to look at that word principle again and see the different uses. We see a trumpet in Old Testament. In Joshua, it signified victory. Marching around the walls, right? Psalm 80 It says, call the people to a new time period. Call them in. This is going to be something that is new. We see in Ezekiel that it was a preparation for battle. Trumpet was also a warning and alarm through Joel. Joel chapter 2 verse 1 says, blow the trumpet in Zion. So this is what he's saying. There's a warning. There's an alarm. In Numbers 10.3, we see this is a calling of the people together so Moses could speak to him. In Leviticus 25.10, it's a call to celebrate the year of Jubilee. Let me get you to understand this just real quickly. When Jesus came to the temple, the very first time he came to the temple and they asked him to read from the scroll, he takes the scroll of Isaiah. And he says, I am going to come and preach the gospel to thee. He reads it to the poor. That he is going to bind up the brokenhearted. But he also says to preach the acceptable year of of the Lord. That acceptable year, if you read it, I'm not going to take the time to do it today, but go home and read Leviticus 25 and you will see that is a reference to the year of Jubilee when after 49 years, the 50th year, there was a Jubilee year where they sounded trumpets and they called the people to celebrate victory, to celebrate peace, to celebrate provision, but also During that Jubilee year, it was a time where all debts were forgiven. All debts canceled. Now think about that. Jesus is saying, I'm going to go out. The angels are going to go out. These messengers are going to go out and they're going to proclaim the gospel. And what is contained in the gospel? They're going to loudly proclaim like a trumpet. Debt, sin is Canceled. 
That's what he's referring to. But trumpet can also serve as a metaphor for a voice. For a voice. Isaiah 58.1 talks about a voice like a trumpet. Revelation 4.1 says, And I looked and I saw a throne in heaven and there was a voice like a trumpet. Doesn't mean it was a trumpet. It was a voice like a trumpet. So, here's what we're looking at. Verse 31. If Jesus is speaking in figures of speech, prophetic hyperbole, and with symbolic words in Matthew 24, which he was, then the trumpet in verse 31 is symbolic of a great work that's about to begin by his gospel messengers in proclaiming the gospel message and consequently gathering his elect from every tribe, tongue, and nation until Jesus comes again. It's even written in Revelation. It says, they sang a new song, speaking of the elders. It says, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And, he, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Here's the, here's the most important question this morning. So what? When you come to the Bible, dear friends, and you're reading the scriptures, it is okay to ask yourself, so what? Now that I've read this, so what? What is the application? In Bible study... Only in word studies, keeping context is king, letting scripture interpret scripture, using word principles, the study word, Bible study word principles to determine what a passage says. After you've read it and you come to it, you ask yourself the question, so what? So what? Well, can I answer the so what this morning? Here's the so what. These things occurred in the first century. That there are gospel, there are messengers, human messengers that carried the gospel out to people proclaiming the gospel, trumpeting the gospel. And we know it has to be true because Romans chapter 10, Paul says, how will they believe without a preacher? How will they believe without a preacher? So there had to be a herald of this. And here's the so what. Somewhere along your journey... In your history, you heard the gospel proclaimed by a faithful messenger. You heard it trumpeted to you so that the Spirit of God would open your heart to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of God granted you repentance so that you would come to Him, you would mourn over your sins and realize that you could not save yourself and you called upon the name of the Lord. Thus fulfilling the Scriptures, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So in your history, if you are here and you have followed the Lord Jesus Christ, proclaim Him as His Savior, you have fulfilled exactly what is happening in verse 13. Jesus sent out his messengers proclaiming the gospel and it continues even to this day. What's the result? You should be totally awed 
and totally dismayed and totally humbled looking at yourself that God chose you from the foundation of the earth to be one of his. It's not a bragging thing, dear friend. It's a humbling thing to know that of all the people in the world, God came to you and chose you and called you forth out of the kingdom of darkness into his light. You should be praising him every moment of every day. That's the so what. I need to give my God praise and glory and honor each and every day. That's how you apply this. Secondly, you apply it by doing the same thing. Going out and proclaiming the gospel to your friends and to your family and to whoever will hear you because God still has his elect that are going to be gathered from the four winds and for the corners of the earth. This is not, understand, this is wording that is used in the Old Testament and it doesn't mean because he says from the four corners that the earth is flat. Guys, there is an argument that continues to go out there that says that the earth is flat based upon those verses like that, yet they skip the verse in Isaiah that says the earth is in its circularity, talks about the circle of the earth. They forget about that one. This is not about, in other words, whether we're going to debate whether the earth is round or flat. It's basically, it says that God has people his people, his elect that are all over the world and we're still calling them to himself. Why do we do that? Because we don't know who the elect are. God does. So we preach it to everybody that everybody can come. And those who are truly elect will come and they'll come with mourning over their sins and they will receive the Lord Jesus Christ. It goes out all over the world. It's a famous quote that goes around by Charles Spurgeon when he's asked, why do you preach this since you are a Calvinist? Why are you preaching to everyone? He said, look, if I knew that God had painted a yellow stripe down the backs of all the elect, I would not be talking. I'd be going out and lifting up shirts to find out who. So what do we do? We go out and we proclaim, and we have the opportunity, as Paul says, to be ambassadors for Christ. And we get the opportunity to tell people about Christ. Third thing is this. How's this applicable? Pray for those who are out there proclaiming the word. Missionaries, pastors, preachers, teachers that are proclaiming them. Pray for them that the word continues to go forth. Pray for those that are in, that are being persecuted for their faith, that they would not give up, that they would continue to persevere, and they would continue under persecution and under tribulation to share the gospel. You've probably read what's happening in China. It comes out almost every, daily. New persecutions, new things that are happening to pastors and pastors' wives and churches being shut down, and these people being persecuted. We read, I read an article about a two weeks ago, I was talking to Brenda about it over the thing. I said, you know what that means? She said, what? I said, the church is going to grow. The church is going to grow in China. They think it's getting growing too fast now. As soon as they're cracking down some more, guess what happens? God's word continues to spread. God's word continued to spread. Think about that. 
Those disciples that stayed in Jerusalem, those followers in Jerusalem, what did Jesus tell them? It says, go and be disciples unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. But where were they hanging out? In Jerusalem. And what happened when persecution began to come? And when he said, well, you see the army surrounded Jerusalem? Flee to Judea? Flee and go? Where'd they go? They went out. And they took the message of the gospel with them. And it spread. You are a result of what they did. Have you ever thought about that? You are a result of what the disciples did 2,000 years ago. Isn't that amazing? So we should give him praise. We should continue to witness. We continue to pray for people that are sharing the word of God. And then lastly is this. You might want to pray for boldness. Boldness. That you would do the same. Why? Because it seems as if we're entering into a time here in our country, in this North America, where they're putting restraints on the gospel and the preaching of the gospel and the shutting down of churches. So we need to pray for boldness. I'm not saying that's coming. We pray that it won't come, but if it does come, what are we going to do? Are we going to cower and cave? Are we going to proclaim boldly the word of God? I pray that we boldly proclaim the word of God. So we see this, we understand it, we begin to look at it. Next week we're going to look and see what God has said about this generation and what does it really mean when he says heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I think it will surprise you. I pray that you would come back and you would hear what the Word of God has to say. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again. Thank you again for this prophecy that you gave to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, O Lord, that we are a product of those disciples going out and proclaiming the Word of the Lord, proclaiming a call, trumpeting the gospel, to the ends of the world, to the ends of the earth, so that we may be gathered into one. So thank you, Lord, for that beautiful, wonderful gospel witness that you sent our way so that we too would be saved. So Lord, I pray for there may be one that is here that does not and has not understood and responded to the gospel call. Lord, I pray that you would open their heart And, Lord, that they would believe upon your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and receive eternal life today. Father, help them to see they need to repent of their sins. See that what they are before you, a righteous, holy God, and they are one that has nothing on but filthy rags. Lord, help them to see that and that they may call upon your name and say, Lord, save me. Save me this day. So, Father, I pray for them as you work in their heart to draw them to yourself. Father, as we leave this place today, I pray that we would take it seriously, that we are your ambassadors, we are your trumpets, we are your messengers. Put that on upon our hearts and put that upon our lips and let us tell someone of the good news of Jesus Christ. 
And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.